Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plenty for Everyone. We're so glad that you joined us today for a great conversation. This is Jeff Shuck, and with me, as always, is Jennifer Mulholland. As you know, we're the co-leaders of Plenty, and we are so thrilled to have a longtime friend, change agent, force of nature, Dory McWhorter with us. Dory and I met too many years ago now to admit when we were both in business school at Kellogg in Northwestern. And about three or four years after Dory and I met, Dory was a partner in an accounting firm. She made a move that surprised nobody and left that path and became the CEO of the YWCA Metropolitan Chicago. And it's not an exaggeration to say she has totally transformed that organization and the role of that organization in Chicago. It's been a massive force for change. And Dory has been recognized for that in many ways. Most recently, or I think most recently, there's probably another award more recent than this, by by being designated a recipient of the Impact Award from the Chicago Foundation for Women. She is a fascinating person and, like I said, a force for positive change. On July 1st, the YWCA is launching a racial justice initiative called the Racial Justice League until justice just is. We are so thrilled to have you here, Dory. Yay! I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Jeff and Jen, for having me. Thank you. It's it's an absolute delight to see conscious leaders like you change the world and conscious leaders like you be in friendship with Jeff because that bond says more than enough about you. So thank you for sharing your time and thank you for honestly giving a shit, really putting your passion and your care to make change where you can and to take those leaps of faith from where you came from to where you are now. And we just love to have our listeners who are interested in conscious leadership to hear more about your story. So maybe we can start there with where you came from, why you made this shift, and and what you're up to right now. Well, first of all, you are so kind and and generous with with everything that you say. I'm like, wow, I hope I can live into (laughs) at least those introductions. So thank you for for that generosity. So as Jeff mentioned, by background, I I am a, a CPA and I actually currently chair the Illinois CPA Society, which I just learned literally today that I'm the first black chair of the Illinois CPA Society, which shouldn't be surprised because there's not a lot of African-American CPAs, but at the same time, um, we just continue to evolve in, in this year of 2020. So hopefully we'll continue to see where we need the first to happen. Hopefully they'll hurry up and happen. But at the same time, I just think that that in and of itself is sort of a sign of where we are as a nation and how we need to continue yeah. to, to evolve and accelerate our paths. But having said that, I'm, you know, I started off my career, was very fortunate to, to be at Arthur Anderson and be surrounded by what I would think a lot of change makers, at least from a business perspective and folks that were highly innovative. But I always feel like, and I know you all appreciate that the 
that there's sort of this dual track, right? There's the the professional side that I've been fortunate to at least select schools and, and get those experiences and then get those on those job opportunities. But then there's also this very you know, I hate to use the word personal to some degree because it's all personal to me, but there's this also this, I would say, more interpersonal side that is the desire that I have to see people in a really good place that continues to to work alongside some of my corporate career or the career path I choose. And so that for me, I would say even starts earlier you know, recognizing that my mom was raised in the Robert Taylor homes in Chicago and which were the consider the projects in Chicago, right, at the time, and how she had us early in life, but continued to just ensure that we were able to access opportunities. And really, until I got to the YWCA, I didn't even truly associate all that part of my story, because Hmm. there was no low expectations of me ever. And so when I got to the YWCA, I was like, oh yeah, no, there's so much bigotry and the low expectations we have in people that may have had sort of different life experiences that I wanted to make sure while I'm at the YWCA to be able to unlock those opportunities because I did have a very full career path and want to also see people unleash their purpose and potential and fully live into all they're capable of as well. So I get the opportunity to do that. Oh my gosh. I wish we had something to talk about. There's like, there's like a hundred story threads here. <laughs> one of the things I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to pick at this one because an interview we had last week started to lay this groundwork. One of the things that I know, because we talked about it in 2013 and 2014, when you were getting involved in the YWCA is that there's such a critical role for this sector and certainly we we're living through that right now, right? We're living through the limits of what government can and, and will do and what business can and, and should do. And there's such a role for this sector that can be not beholden to the whims of its constituents and not necessarily beholden to profit. And yet the sector is awfully is is often the least innovative sector when it needs to be the most innovative. And I know from when you started at the YWCA, you came in, you know, I used the word transformation a few minutes ago, and I don't use that word lightly and neither does Jen. You came in saying, I'm going to change the way we operate because the people we serve deserve it. I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about the innovation path you've taken and, and continue to take and how that relates to what you just said about low self-image of the people we serve and bigotry inherent in old attitudes or attitudes that were never serving us correctly. Like how does, walk us through that journey of transformation. Sure. And so I'll, I'll start with saying that you mentioned the Chicago Foundation for Women's Impact Award. Well, I had received one other award that I think is just, it's so exciting to me that I want to mention. And that in 2019, I was the one of the recipients of um, Chicago Innovation Um, Hall of Fame or Innovators Hall of Fame. And to me, that was really important because coming out of this sector, as you just mentioned, Jeff, that 
innovation and um, nonprofit don't necessarily go together, particularly the charities and the human services parts of that sector. And so I was happy about that because it also gave me an opportunity to further lean into my philosophies around how I think business and social service sectors and or impact sector, however you want to describe it, can do more in government, of course, but can do more to serve people better. And I think that I come from this from two sides, given that, you know, the first part of my career, and of course, where I met you um, in MBA school, right, or in B school, that I always felt that the sole purpose of business is to advance society, period. However, you then have the social service sector who has the mandate to they actually don't necessarily, in my opinion, talk about advancing society as much as it talks about sort of solving social problems, which I think are, yes, they go together, but they're not necessarily the same thing, right? Because I would argue that, you know, we could really argue that, you know, when Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, that that absolutely advanced society, given that now you have so many people that can access and connect in ways that could never happen before, right? I think that's a societal advancement. Now, whether we can argue how good or bad that is, that's another story. But in general, I think it's a societal advancement versus solving a societal issue or problem, right? Which is what our sector is generally oriented towards. And so for me, when I came into the YWCA, I saw that from our comprehensive set of solutions that we were absolutely solving social problems and, or working to solve social problems. But what I found challenging is that as an organization, as we were looking at continued decline from a revenue perspective. So when I started, we were about $10 million, losing about a million dollars a year. Now in 2020, we're knocking on about 30 million as an organization. And while we have experienced growth because of the way we continue to do the work and create the right, in my opinion, a good business model or a better business model, I still say we're 140 years old and we're only 30 million and we still haven't solved these problems. So there's still so much yet for, for us to do. But from my perspective in terms of the transformation is that we really had to ask different questions because we were looking at our services and saying, wow, this work is amazing the fact that we are we operate in the rate prices lines across the entire metropolitan Chicago area, the fact that we are we are a small business development center, the largest small business development center on the south side of Chicago. So we're doing all these just amazing things and incredible work. But I always felt that the underlying business was just not sustainable for us, right? And so for me, it was really understanding and being able to articulate that our work, that we exist in the same marketplace as in Apple, since I mentioned them, right, that we exist in the same marketplace, but we're not seen as contributing any value to the marketplace. And that's not true. And so fundamentally, I say that that the work in human services is the greatest value that we can contribute to any marketplace. But yet, as a nonprofit, we're sort of conditioned or trained not to recognize that we that there is value in the people that we serve and being able to then take a business model and create that model was what I've been focused on. And for me, it's so important because just by the very notion, which is why I don't use the word nonprofit a lot, is that we've somehow said that this work doesn't matter. And if the work doesn't matter, that means the output of the work, which are the people, also don't matter or we don't value it. And that to me is fundamentally a flaw in how we even orient around nonprofit, particularly around human services. And so my goal has been to 
claim and proclaim that we are absolutely value creators in the marketplace. And our goal is to capture more of that value so that we can do more of the work to allow people to fulfill their potential and contribute to the marketplace, just like everybody else already is doing. But for some reason, as a sector, we don't necessarily get to proclaim that or it's frowned upon to proclaim that. But then what's most important to me is that the people that we serve by default, because they're our outcomes, don't matter too. And that to me, I just had to reconcile and and think about our whole business differently to really proclaim and put a stake in the value that I think we bring to the market as well as the people we serve also bring. I love that perspective that you have. And you and I share innovation as a passion point. I was innovation officer for a Fortune 500 tech company and always wired to help elevate human potential. And I really appreciate that you're focusing on the human element of outcomes because it's really interesting. Like innovation doesn't care whether you're for-profit or non-profit. Like ideas come, they download, there's science around ideas, the exact idea hitting the planet through people at the same exact time in different geolocations around the world, which is a whole fascinating study, right? But when our work is around elevating society, creating social justice, social good, making this world a better place, helping conscious leaders make a difference, whatever that story is. It's interesting to hear you focus on the metric of outcomes related to people because we're in the people business. So how do we show that more effectively in comparison to an Apple for-profit tech company with a human service value? And I think that we have more work to be done there and really appreciate your leadership and, and helping Chicago area and local, local communities understand that the value of the output is worth as much as it is the technology and advancement, for example. I want to go back to something you surfaced in your introduction real quick, and you shared a little bit about your mother's expectations of you and having this high bar, right, and wanting to bring that forth in your leadership. I hear that That's a mindset as we look to the greatness of what others, other people naturally are. Like if we look to their less than, we're going to get less than right? But if we look to their potential, if we help them see what they're capable of, then we unlock a a growth and accomplishment. And you're living an example of that, I see. Can you talk about what your expectations are? What is that high bar that you're setting for the YWCA? And for society at large, like what are your highest hopes in the position of leadership that you are to, I would say, pass that baton of the high bar that you grew up in? Sure, I appreciate that. So what was interesting to me is that I I participated in Head Start. It wasn't until I started way down my life that I didn't recognize that Head Start was supposedly for low-income children. What I knew is that I was going to school at three and that I loved math and I loved reading. And that became sort of my foundation. And I never knew 
because no one told me the reason or how I got to Head Start. So why I think that that's so important is because there, and I know you all know this more than anyone, that there is a, a stereotype bias where people, uh, there's um, a great study that was done in a book that was written about it called Whistling Vivaldi, where an African-American student at the University of Chicago, as they would walk down the street, they would whistle classical music so that people wouldn't be afraid of them and clutch their purses tighter and all of those things. And what the it talks about, just the biases that we have with stereotypes and how that clearly impacts um, not only the the holders of those stereotypes, but the people that are aware that those stereotypes are had that are had about them also perform at, at lower rates. And so why I think that's so important is that here I sat not understanding all the programs that I may have participated in throughout my life or but somehow benefited from all of those things and never benefited from a perspective or never knew that they were intended because I was this or because I was this or whatever the case may be. And so I just think that that's so important to sort of have that same perspective that we could support people, but don't support people in ways that says, because you're this, we need to do this for you or to you, right? And so how I've translated that into the work of the YWCA, we don't talk about our work as programs. We talk about our work as services because because services, we want people to engage with that because you want to have that experience to change your life or create a different outcome or you know, have an opportunity that you may not have had before. It isn't because something's wrong with you. It isn't because of another stereotype that because, because we have marginalized you that we now call you disadvantaged or we call you this or we call you that. To me, that mindset is so important as we look to really serve people and support them and help address challenges or barriers that they may be having to really unlock their potential. I think about, you know, Jeff, you may remember this in one of our leadership classes, we had to go through this process of choosing sort of who we would save if, if given the opportunity. So the people had different professions, there were different sort of demographics about their life. And I was not a good classmate or a team member at the time, because I literally would just shake it up. And I was like, this one. And they're like, that's not the point. You're supposed to rationale and choose people. And I was like, you know nothing about these people. You don't know what their possibility and potential is. So just because you want to judge them by all the characteristics or the factors we've been giving doesn't make you make it worth them being the chosen one to survive whatever experience they were going through. And so I really (laughs) and people were not happy with me on my team, but, and I kept doing it round after round. I just kept shaking it up because I do believe (laughs) that, you know, as I think you already described and appreciate Jen, that we don't know what the potential is for a single person, but what we need to do is what we can do is create more of the conditions for that potential to be expressed. And so for me, whether I sit and do that at work with the folks that I work with in my office or in one of our centers, or if that person is a community member, that's what I see my role is in all of this. And so I just want to, I'm just so grateful that I actually have a job that understands that in human services, the, the, the human point really, really, really matters to me. And I have an opportunity to create systems and processes to remove systemic barriers. I have an opportunity to to say that, no, we're not going to classify you as this. We're going to 
have you define yourself for what you want to be? And by the way, continue to show you other examples so that you can think about that more and more and explore that potential for yourself. And so for me, I just think it's so important to just lean into that. And I just happen to have a job that allows me to do that as well. Oh my gosh. I love, I love where we're going here. And one of the things that you've alluded to is kind of a core ethos of plenty. And for people who've been listening to the podcast for a few weeks now, you've heard, we did a whole episode on this, but if you didn't, or you missed it, I want to just emphasize one of the, the core ethos of plenty is that there is enough, that there can be plenty for everyone. And it seems like such a simple, and I think to some people, naive idea until you start to realize a lot of the systems we have are based on the belief that there isn't enough. And so for someone to get ahead, we have to marginalize someone else. So many of that, we had a wonderful conversation with a woman named B. Bacalandro a few weeks ago. And in it, I sound like I'm saying the system works. That's not what I was saying. I was saying the system works for the architects of the system. And the architects of the system, in a lot of senses, whether it's government or capitalists, long ago thought, well, for me to win, someone else has to lose. What it feels like we're seeing now, and it's a, it's a year of disruption, but there's great things coming of it. The cost is high, but there's great things coming of it. And what we're hearing is people are starting to say, wait a second, that system doesn't work for me. Why do we have to pick one person out of the bucket? Why can't you save everybody? Like, where is it written that you can only save a few people? I love, I can, Jen, you're nodding your head, so I want you a chance. Yeah, yeah, and blending this mindset of abundance with looking for the good in another inherently, really intentionally shifting our focus of what we're choosing to see. And what we're looking for, you know, at Lantern, our leadership retreat, we call it look for the light in another, like literally look for the goodness. And I think, Dora, your example of like, they're all equal. Let me just pull it out of the hat, says so much about the system architecting judgment, right? Better than, worse than, have, have not, based on a set of criteria or characteristics that's just you equalized it. And, and I think we need more of that. Like, how can we, and maybe you could talk to, that's in you as a disruptor, right? That's in you to say, let me throw out the system because the construct doesn't make sense. The construct is perpetuating separation, judgment, better than, worse than. But when we're looking for the light, if we're looking for the good in others and, and knowing that everybody has equal opportunity to express that, how do you find that you speak up, that you can disrupt, that you can be the neutralizer in those inequities that are in the system that Jeff was just talking to, right? Sure. You know, it's so, you know, I don't know the moment it happened or if it's just what I was put on this earth to, to do, but I love a quote by Bucky Fuller, so Buckminster Fuller, and he said that you never change things by fighting the existing reality. You create new models that make the old models obsolete. And so whenever I'm confronted with things that just don't make sense to me, I say, yeah, that must be a new way because I also believe that because I do orient towards a perspective that 
most people are, are doing the best they know how to do. So mm-hmm. I look at systems and say, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, but I trust that whoever created this process, system, construct, whatever it may be, that they did the best they could with what they, what they knew at the time. However, I know different. And I see different facts now. So I think it's up to me to make a change, to make a change if it does not work for us today. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, I've sort of given myself carte blanche permission to change anything I want. <laughs> and so, and I do it all the time. It drives my husband crazy. I can't go through the drive through at a restaurant. I'm like, no, I think I don't need a pickle on that. I need this or that. And so he's like, you change everything. I just don't believe in accepting things I don't want. <laughs> I just don't want that. But but having said that, I do think it's really important to to recognize that so much of what we are trying to sort of fight was created without any knowledge of the current circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. So if it does not work, we need to change it. And unfortunately, as Jeff described earlier, there's so many constructs that were built on this this have and have nots or or plenty or lack. There's these all these juxtapositions that so many of the systems that we have were built on. And now I think it's up to us and in the world and where we sit today to take a step back and and acknowledge that they are not working and then thoughtfully create the best we know. And then someone else can come judge us a hundred years from now and be like, why did they ever think that could be possible? And it's going to be up for them to, to them to change that system. But right now, what we know is that so many people are marginalized and so many people are put in positions that not with even their own choice have gotten them there and we know better. So we should do better and we should use the talents and the gifts that we have to contribute to society in a different way. So I just, you know, I never even use the words sort of giving back. I watched some a TED talk and the, the person was a CEO at a company in Brazil and he was like, when you say giving back, it means you took too much to begin with. So I just think it's everyone's responsibility to just contribute to society, period. But again, this even giving back, there's this sort of like, oh, there's there's not enough, so I took too much, so now I got to give you some back. No, I think we all have a responsibility to contribute from wherever we sit. Yeah, that's good. that's a great lead into or kind of touching on or one of the undercurrents is aside from the undercurrent of abundance and the idea of not accepting the frame that's there. I love that idea is a little bit the difference between equity and justice, which is going to give us a chance to talk about what you're going to be launching here in early July. For those of you who are listening, we're recording this in mid-June. Not exactly sure when you're listening to it, but equity and justice are concepts that I think refreshingly are getting a lot of attention right now. And I don't know that everybody gets the difference. So I'm going to give it a shot. And then I'd love for Dory, for you to tell us a little bit about um, the Racial Justice League that you're launching. Equity is helping helping to make sure that everybody has the same access or gets the same share. Justice goes a step further than that and says, let's fix the causes of inequity to begin with. So I think one of the things that's been encouraging for Plenty to see out of the massive tragedy that we're all living through in some way, shape, or form is people start to move from this idea of equality, freedom, or maybe there's equities, maybe a deeper goal. But beyond that, to get equity, it's clearer and clearer we have to seek justice. So 
I think we we're really moved to hear about the Racial Justice League, which we learned about just today, and would love for you to share what you can, it's not public yet, about what you're gonna be doing and how people can take part in that. Sure, and so as long as you all have pinky sweared me to releasing this after July 1st, I could share <laughs> all of it. I could share all of it because hopefully as people listen to this, and thank you, Jeff, for sort of time stamping us. I wasn't sure how evergreen we needed to be but having said that, you know, we felt with the YWCA, our mission is to eliminate racism, empower women by promoting peace, justice, dignity, and freedom for all. So essentially what we said is that, you know, if we actually eliminate racism and we actually empower women, then we will have created an inclusive marketplace where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. So that's ultimately sort of our end game in this. And as I was driving in this morning, I was like, you know, we got 20 years. Um, that's all I'm giving us, 20 years. We got to get this done in 20 years, right? So um, I've time stamped that for myself. But what we determined that we have this mission and we've been living the mission, as I described some of our services, we've been absolutely understanding the impacts of racism in community and the systems um, that so many people are participating in that's unfortunately um, have been, racism just has been woven into those systems. And so we've been working and doing direct service work to try to move people beyond those circumstances and systems. And so what we said is that, you know, we need everyone doing this work though. We just can't be us. And so what we decided is that we would create the Racial Justice League and to give something, give people something to hang their hat on to say, yes, I'm going to, so we have a pledge portion, which I love the pledge, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So to say, yes, I pledge to create a, a world free of racism. Actually, we, we're starting with America, so America free of racism. I also pledge to continue to support the work of the YWCA, which we're getting at the heart of the, the impacts of racism, and then also make a commitment to uh, even my organization or personally to actually think about what I can do to affect and create justice and equality, right? And so we want people to really just lean in and dig into what makes sense for them, given who they are, where they are. I always say this, that we all have platforms. We are all individuals. Therefore, we all individually have a platform. Some platforms are bigger than others. So if you're like Bono, I expect you to be able to, like, you should be solving world hunger because your platform is big enough to support that level of an issue, right? But with racism, because it is so insidious and just so, as I mentioned, woven into everything, everyone can do something, right? And so we want people to take that perspective. So by having this pledge, what we did we and why we're launching it on July 1 is because July 4th is Independence Day and which we think about the founding of this country um, in 1776 and the Declaration of Independence that talks about we hold these truths to be self-evident but all men are created equal all that good stuff so we kind of fixed it for them and and take a, took another look at that pledge and <laughs> and, and say that that all people are created equal and un, and born with certain unalienable rights including life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and we kind of added regardless of who they love how they identify where they come from or the color of their skin and go on from there because, you know, the, the founding fathers didn't exactly have all of us in mind as they were starting this country. And so we wanted to sort of declare sort of a new day in America that we will create the land of the free and that it has to be free from racism. And so our goal is to 
put that message out there and just to remind people that we can all do our part and it can be, you, I don't even call it big or small because racism is just such an ingrained in who this country is, but to do something, even if it's having a conversation with someone or gaining a new perspective about something, we can all do something. And to me, we all need to do something because we are just at that point where I just don't know that we can live into our potential. I always say this, that I love this country. I love the promise of this country and what it could be. And I just don't think until each of us recognize and and actually contribute to that, then we will never really fulfill the promise of this country either. Mm. I love, what a wonderful, I wouldn't call it campaign, but you yeah, call it in, campaign. We're calling it in, campaign. That's what we're starting. Campaign with. intent claim. Yeah. You know, I think that the thing that is a reminder to us all is in order to create the world of the free, the land of the free, pursuit of happiness and justice for all. And adding, regardless of your sexual orientation, who you love, what color of your skin, where you come from is imagining what that end state would be like Mm -hmm. and bringing that here into the present. Because we get caught in this idea that we're on the hamster wheel to create the solutions to that end state. And the tricky part of quantum physics is it's this idea like if we're hoping for that to happen, we're going to continue creating distance between where we are in that end state. Mm-hmm. The reverse is literally acting as if we're already there. Right. And, and channeling that into our choices and our behavior and using the platform, as you just stated, that we have, each one of us has a different level of influence, a different community of touch, a different reach, that we use that place to behave differently now. Not later, not on July 4th when we're reminded of the celebratory of our independence day. No, we do that now. And the answer to that is very personal. It's not prescriptive. It's really not predictive because it is so unique to where we've come from, what our lineage has been, what the legacy we've been brought up in. And is that time to carry on or is it time to stop it? And to really think about bringing that, I think, that experience of freedom, that experience of happiness and the right to pursue it, regardless of who you are, to bring that here and now so that we can actualize it. And I love the campaign that's reminding us and creating that correlation and would just invite the listeners to say the time is not then. It's not someday, one day. The time is right now to choose how do we behave that way? How do we model the way as leaders for others to follow follow without any instructions? You know, the answers will rise in the moment in that call to say, I agree with this setup or I don't, just like you shared before. Or I'm feeling pulled to speak up now. Here's how I what I need to voice. Or here's how I need to look for the good and the potential in whoever I'm speaking with on that day. I would follow up with that and say it it incorporates another 
Dory, your, your consistent ability to, I, I love what you said about not accepting the frame that I'm given. You said it a little bit differently, but, and yeah. I, I think I'd follow up Jen with your comments on, on that, particularly for, for white people who are trying to figure out how to be anti-racist and what is the step there, there's a, a change in framing that is so inherent, I think, in whites and people of privilege. And the framing many of us grew up with is we have equal rights and we need to work to get those for other people who don't have them, right? That's kind of the traditional, like I would say, liberal ethos that I grew up in. The change in framing and that gets us from equality to justice is no, everybody has rights. And some people's rights have been deliberately taken away. And when you make that switch, you can't see anything the same anymore, right? We all have it, we're born with it, but systems, people, governments, maybe we're doing their best that they could at the time, Dory. I'm not sure I believe all of that, but- The best they knew how. Yeah, the best best they knew how, God bless them, but- Everybody has it and born with it. It takes us to take it away. So it can only take us to bring it back. So I love, first of all, we're up for the pledge too. One thing we talk about a lot, maybe this will be my last comment, is at Lantern we say, you know, leaders choose themselves. You raise your own hand. And whenever you hear yourself saying, wow, someone should really fix this, that's your invitation to be the someone. So I just love that has always been part of your ethos story as long as I've known you. And it's really fantastic to see what you're doing. And I know we want to be a huge part of it. On that note, Dory, with just a couple of minutes left, would you like to share anything that we haven't covered or any words of encouragement to other leaders like yourself to raise their own hand and have the confidence that you do to disrupt and disentangle and dismantle the paradigms that are limiting people of being seen as equal in this pursuit of justice for all. Sure. Well, again, thank you all for having me. It's just been such a pleasure. I just appreciate all that you all are and so glad that I exist at the same time you do. So thank you for for letting me hang out. (laughs) You know, I love quotes because they tend to sum it all up for me. But the quote that comes to my mind with that particular question, Jen, is by Maya Angelou. And she says that if you're lucky, a solitary fantasy can transform a million realities. And I think that that to me is what's so important, why I did not want to ever decide who I chose, because who knew, who knows what dreams or hopes or aspirations a single person could have because of who they are and all that they've experienced that could absolutely contribute so much to this earth and support the change for the rest of us, right? So I just encourage people to lean into everything that they are, because it only takes one of us, you know, it only takes one act that could literally transform the realities for millions. And so I just, um, unfortunately that happens for good and bad, but I'm just hoping that there's some, I believe in the, the good in people and humanity. And so my hope is that people just fully live into all that they can be and choose to raise their hand and take on the challenges and the, the things that they see in the world, because you just never know what that opportunity can unfold for the rest of us. 
Mm-hmm. Love, Love that. that. It's time to take off and to, I would say, shatter the glass ceilings, right? The <laughs> self-limited boxes that we placed ourselves in as a human species and as a people and as individuals. The quote you just shared from Maya just gave me chills of the reminder of how powerful one fantasy can be to create a new reality that is in store for us if we can dream it, we can see it, and we can hope for it, and we can believe it, then it shall be. And really grateful to be in your presence to see you modeling the way for that and so many others. So really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We hope that you found the conversation as inspiring and stimulating as we do. And they're all this inspiring and stimulating. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe on the podcast service of your choice. Give us a rating. We read them all and we appreciate them all. More than anything, make a difference where you are. It matters. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Dory. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at plentyconsulting.com.